This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of meaningful sport. I'm very excited about today's episode, where we explore applied sports psychology with talented youth athletes. Becoming a professional footballer is a dream for so many young boys, but we know that only a very small fraction of them will ever play in professional sport. What are the implications for being involved in the talent development programs in football academies for the identity development of these young people? And what kind of meanings of sport and being an athlete are promoted in these environments? These are some of the questions we will be exploring today. I'm delighted to have Francesca Champ, a lecturer in psychology in football at Liverpool John Moores University, discussing with me today. Francesca's research has focused on psychosocial development and identity in professional football, organizational and cultural sports psychology, applied sports psychology consultancy, and mental health in sport. Her PhD work was a very exciting practitioner researcher ethnography in professional football, and we will hear a lot more about that today. So welcome to the podcast, Fran, and I'm delighted to have this conversation with you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and look forward to today's session. Yeah, me too. And so as we get started, I'll just mention that I had the wonderful opportunity to collaborate with you in writing a couple of articles based on your doctoral research. And I think the first remark, just to say that I'm so impressed about all this, uh, like such a big amount of data that you collected. (laughs) Uh, So doing a three-year ethnography as a practitioner researcher is certainly not something that most PhD students are able to do um, in in that stage. And I think it's such a rich source of data to gain an understanding what is going on in talent development and and in uh, in football academies as well. So maybe as a start, just share us a little bit about the background of that work and how you developed your ideas and research questions and how it all got started. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, And thank you for the introduction. So I guess it came about from an MSc sports psychology placement and the introduction of the EPPP or the Elite Player Performance Plan within English professional football. So um, very much when I started out, my ambition and my dream was to work within the professional football context. And therefore, I saw a master's placement, which was with one professional football club to help um, with regards to their delivery of sports psychology support at group level to players in the youth development phase. Um, The reason that the placement actually came about was because of the introduction of the EPPP. 
So the EPPP is a player-led and holistic cycle, uh, holistic development plan that was introduced by the Premier League in 2012. And they identified that there was a real gap between identified and talented youth players and those that were actually successful in then making the transition from the academy through to the first team particularly in the Premier League and also at an international level. So we had very talented young performers, but then they weren't translating to senior international um, success. So, for example, we were underachieving in major tournaments like the Euros and the World Cup, which led the FA in the Premier League to consider what's going wrong um, and why aren't these youth performers having that successful transition we know it's a really difficult stage to go from youth performance to senior performance but what were some of the barriers that these athletes were facing and what about the environment was preventing that successful movement so they introduced the EPPP which provided much greater provision um, with regards to a range of development areas So, for example, sports psychology support was formalised, sports science support was, um, again, formalised, different aspects were introduced with regards to education, welfare, player care. Um, So it was a much broader programme to develop players as people, to develop players as performers, to ultimately in the long term try and produce or try to increase the rate of those individuals who were successfully making the youth to senior transition. And I guess that made clubs think. So clubs were then required to think a little bit more about the services that they provided and the provision that was in place. And I think what became really apparent was that many clubs were over-focusing on the delivery of coaching methods, uh, coaching training practices, perhaps at the cost of some of the broader sports science disciplines. And we might include sports psychology within that. So there was very few sport and exercise psychology practitioners working within professional football at youth levels prior to the introduction of the EPPP. So it was almost, what do we deliver? What support do these players need? What help do they require to have a more successful journey? And I guess that was where I first started out. So there was a number of practitioners that were operating at senior level but we know that youth and senior performance is very different. So what are the unique socio-cultural and psychological challenges that these players face and how do we best support them through with the aim of long-term success with regards to their personal development and their ability to perform as an individual. So hopefully that gives you kind of an idea of how I ended up in that environment. Um, I did the placement and on the back of a placement it was um, then offered the opportunity. I really wanted to stay in that applied capacity because I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was super challenging, but also really rewarding. And what I felt and what my supervisory team felt was very much that we had a blank canvas and we had a rare opportunity in that there were very few guidelines regarding how to go about sports psychology. We knew that it was needed. We knew that it was important. But how do we deliver, how do we design, implement and deliver a programme within professional youth football or elite youth football and that's where the PhD research came into play so it was almost can I occupy a dual role as a practitioner and as a researcher with a number of different aims and I think the first aim because we didn't really understand the context 
was to say, what are the psychological challenges that youth players are facing longitudinally? So that lined with the three-year duration of the programme as a function of the environment in which they exist. So as a function of the professional football culture, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we progress through the podcast. So that was kind of one aim. And in relation to that aim then, how might we support players, support players to develop their identity, support players to have positive psychological well-being and improve their performance? I'm not sure I got that balance and I'm not sure whether that balance can even be achieved within a professional football context, but that was the second objective. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess in line with that, a little bit more from a personal point of view was we know that professional football is very much male dominated so everybody that I worked with at the club apart from the chef which is again quite traditional was a male so there was only me and one other female in the environment and I wanted to explore how did that shape me as a practitioner how did that shape my own identity how did that shape my own development and how did I tend to some of the challenges and how did I deal with some of the challenges that arose as a function of being female, a young female in a very male dominated environment? So we tried to capture all of that. And alongside that, we had one final thread that run through, which was to say, OK, we've designed a program based on the based on the psychological challenges faced by these players We've now implemented the program. We've delivered the program. Can we evaluate using a range of stakeholders' perspectives, so players, parents and staff, because they're all integral in shaping a player's journey? Can we evaluate the effectiveness or can we evaluate the efficacy of what I was delivering? Was it appropriate? And what were the needs of the players, the staff and the parents? And how did we meet them or not meet them? So hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea. And sorry for waffling. No, that's certainly a really good introduction. And I'll just link all the articles uh, from the PhD project in the show notes so people can then go and read of each part of that. So I think, and what you said about your own journey and your professional development, we'll we'll talk about that in, in the second part of our conversation. But I think for now, what you already started talking about, what is the impact of that environment? What kind of place is it to develop as an athlete and a young person uh, in a football academy and we certainly have a lot of very critical work in sociology and psychology as well that are talking about some of the uh, it's almost like a cruel environment very cutthroat and short term and you know you are only as good as like when you stop performing then you are out and that's it so are those some of the things that you saw as well or maybe we'll just talk broadly about what did you see in three years yeah sure I think it's very very unique um and obviously attaining one club's perspective that might not necessarily be generalizable but from the literature I think my own experiences very much align with what's done been done previously um and I absolutely do think it's an incredibly cutthroat environment and I'd argue that People maybe focus on it being cutthroat at senior level and cutthroat maybe during that 18 to 23 transition. So the transition from youth to senior. But what I observed as well is the intense pressure that these players are placed under from the ages of five, six and seven. I think the environment is consistent and coherent right from the point when they enter the club which might be part-time as a four-year-old or a five-year-old in the pre-academy, 
right through to when they sign their first contract age nine and perhaps then when they move into the first team after progressing through the under 23 age group and I think that can be demonstrated in a number of ways so for example it's cutthroat with regards to contracts players are often housed at the academy on a one-year contract which means that every 12 months their position within the academy is revisited and a new decision is made as to whether they will remain a part of the football organisation or whether they will be released. So they know that they're always on a short-term contract. And this is the case prior to adolescence, during adolescence and post-adolescence. And it places them under in huge pressure week in, week out, because they know that every single game, every single performance is being judged Every training session is being judged and each of those will contribute to that final decision being made every 12 months. So it's significantly cutthroat in that sense with regards to the short-term nature of contracts. For example, if you have a player that picks up an injury but that's simply a three to four week duration, they're absolutely petrified of the impact that might have on a decision over their contract. And I observed that with nine, 10, 11 year old children that have picked up a time at, let's say, a grade one or two hamstring tear that keeps them out for a small number of weeks. And they're using things like, will this be held against me? Will I now be viewed as a player that's injury prone? Because I'm missing two big games, will a coach believe that I can't perform in the big games? Will they question whether I'm out because I'm truly injured or because I just want a break from the season? I've not been playing well recently, so the manager's questioning my intentions around this injury. So I would say very much for me, what was also present within that environment, because of it being so intense, because of it being then being under so much scrutiny, was a lot of them were scared. So what I often observed was a scarcity narrative, which is where players were always performing and acting within themselves in order to fit within the environment as opposed to being creative, as opposed to trying to um, pursue alternative opportunities, as opposed to viewing a challenge as something that they can embrace. They were very much around the mindset of not wanting to cause any frictions, always behaving within a restrained manner, behaving in a way that they believed coaches would think is appropriate, not trying to ruffle any feathers. And so that for me, aligns with the authoritarian nature of professional football and the masculinity as well. I think it was very much a hierarchy in that if you were in the under-23 age group, you were viewed as having significantly more power than the under-18s. And that went right down to players in the ages of eight or nine. And that was demonstrated through coach behaviours, but also through player behaviours. So, for example, um, coaches would the younger players would clean the older players' boots. So that's an example of how the hierarchy plays out within the professional football organisation. Younger players would clean the environment as opposed to the older players. It would be a punishment for an older player to be put down an age group to play with the younger players. Um, And players then would impose that on on each other as well with the way in which they communicate with players in the age groups younger to them. So it was... It was very much about dominance. It was very much about status, about power, around hierarchy. Um, It was a very authoritarian environment and very masculine in that a number of these players, they engaged in a range of different techniques such as banter, potentially at times bullying, to ensure that they fitted in with the culture and the environment around them. So, yeah, 
I think what I observe very much aligns with the literature in sociology and psychology about professional football. Yeah, hearing your stories and and these descriptions, I'm just wondering, you work with these young players for a number of years, do they experience joy of sport or do they talk about the joy of playing football or is most of the things you hear about worries and anxiety? Um, that's a really good question. I think for me, the general trend that I observed was a love-hate relationship. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's a healthy relationship, but I think that's what I found in that players, they love football as a game. They love mm. being out on the pitch and playing. But at times, the culture and the factors around it mean that they they hate it. They're scared of it. They're, they want to step out on the pitch to do the thing that they love, but they're absolutely yeah. petrified of stepping out on that pitch in case they make a mistake or in case they're judged in a particular way. They're petrified of not starting, picking up an injury. So it was... Whilst, And some of them then spoke around, which was really sad to see, really, the pressure at age 12, 13 or 14 placed on them from others and the expectations of others that they just took their joy from playing in the park or playing on the street with their friends, which it was almost like a separation between fun is fun and fun is separate to this environment and football is fun away from this environment. Football is fun when I play for school, but this environment, it's professional and it's serious and the love the love is there, but the fun and the joy isn't there, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And yeah, I I have to ask, like, because when you mentioned about this plan that, you know, there's a worry that it's only a small number who are like moving to the senior level sport. But so whatever improvements in the system might take place, it will always be that only a small small number of players, maybe a little bit bigger number, but still the vast majority of of the young players will never be professional athletes because there aren't enough professional teams for all of these young people to play in so kind of thinking about this what are these young people going to do after that and what kind of role football might have in their life so was that part of your work as well um yeah so that was for me that was a really big part of why I wanted to operate within professional football and I guess the way in which I view it is the needle in the haystack is the one that makes it But I feel that these young players, these youth athletes, they're dedicating and they're sacrificing a large proportion of their childhood and adolescence to becoming a professional footballer. And the reality is that it will only be the needle in the haystack who makes it. So Mm. I think we have a duty of care as a professional football club and the governing bodies of the Premier League and the FA to ensure that those that don't make it, their football experience, when they look back on it, it was enriching and it provided them with a platform um, for positive psychological well-being and provided them with a platform for broader life skill development as opposed to something that they look back on with regret, with hurt, with hate and with feeling as though I sacrificed everything for nothing. All that it's done is taken from me. So I absolutely think that Sports psychology, but also more broadly football clubs as a whole, have a duty to support the broader development, the life development of all of those who exist within it and to ensure that it's an enriching experience, whether successful or not, for Mm. all of the players, as opposed to 
okay, we'll provide psychological support to all players, but the ultimate focus is performance enhancement. And the minute that you drop out, it's because A, you didn't have the right qualities to succeed. You were injury prone. You weren't uh, technically or tactically, you weren't capable. And they fall out of that system just being, I guess, damaged goods might be the word that I'd use. I really, really wanted to give those players something else so that their time in football was worthwhile. But of course we accept that then that contradicts the whole point or the whole purpose of the academy, which is to produce players that can go on and play at first team level. So it's mm. yeah. the job of coaches is to invest in the best players as a sports psychologist working for the club. I think there's a real tension around whether your role is also to invest in the best players and to provide psychological support and to facilitate the psychological development of those players who will go on to make it. But that leaves 95% of the other players within the organisation almost hanging without any form of, not without any form of support and guidance, but without gaining an enriching experience through being a part of the club. Hmm. So it's a really horrible tension. Yeah, yeah, it is a really horrible tension. And just like you said, the vast majority are the ones who will never play professional sports. So what was the value of of that experience for them? And that's such an important question. And I mean, certainly in your work, you have problematized so many things about the culture, the coaching practices, um, the narratives around football and, and also the narratives around athletic identity. So Maybe we'll talk a little bit about athletic identity. So how how does being a footballer gain meaning for, for these young players? How how do they view it? And how do the coaches support identity development if they do? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, sure. So I think athletic identity is one lens to look through it and is actually probably a really traditional way to view how a footballer might perceive themselves so for me I would be very much of the opinion that many of these young players have a really really strong in fact almost exclusive athletic identity and what I mean by that is that from the ages of six seven eight right the way through to 23 they the moment that they sign for a professional football club They dedicate a huge portion of their life to training and living a lifestyle that will allow them to be the best performer they can possibly be. So they straight away, they almost identify with the label, I'm a footballer. And what I think is really interesting is I actually did a session once with, I think they were under 12s or under 13s. And it was around, who do you think you are? And when I asked them who they thought they were, they all very much talked about the badge that they played for. They talked about the position that they played and they talked about their success and achievements in a footballing context. So what was really clear to me is that the athletic identity of these individuals pre, during and post adolescence is very, very strong. They view themselves as a footballer. they They live the lifestyle that they believe a footballer should live. Socially, their network is football. And I think that isn't necessarily through choice, but not having opportunities to explore elsewhere. So, for example, they're training at age nine or ten, three or four times per week. They're also then playing at a weekend. A lot of players now in England are also placed within particular schools, which means they go through school with 
other individuals who are also at their club. So they never have the opportunity to socialise outside of kind of the football network, which means that they do develop this exclusive and this really strong athletic identity. And I think coaches also facilitate or further encourage that. But I don't think coaches do that in a negative way. Because I'd argue that coaches believe in order to be successful, you have to commit yourself, you have to dedicate yourself. And we want these lads, and that's the way that they would frame it, we want these lads to act and be like a footballer right from the moment they enter this club. So if they're entering the club at the age of 9, 12 or 15, what you have to do then is put your footballer hat on, put your footballer clothes on and you are a footballer. And it's I have to align to all of these behaviours to give myself the best chance of being successful. And I think for those that might stray a little bit outside of that remit, it's not looked favourably upon. So, for example, we had a few players that were also really good and really talented at other sports. And it was, you can't play the other sport in case you get injured and it means you spend time out of football. You can't do the other sport because it will fatigue you. It will tire you. Everything needs to be given to football. You can't do the other sport because it will take your time away from thinking about and preparing for a game. So if you're performing on a Saturday with your local cricket team, you won't be thinking about and preparing for the match on a Sunday. You might not be physically in the best position place that you can be so every time I guess an individual moved away from that strong and exclusive athletic identity it was frowned upon by the coaches but I don't Mm -hmm. think it was frowned upon I don't think they thought actually this may be good for them in the long term this may be good for their broader psychological development I think their lens was so narrow that this might impact them this weekend or this might impact them next weekend, as opposed to longitudinally, very few of them are going to make it. So how can we how can we enrich this individual with the experiences at football and provide them with the opportunities to also have enriching experiences elsewhere to develop a broader identity? So, yes, I think the athletic identity and the dedication was very strong. And in relation to that, they then had to align with some of those cultural features, which is around being tough sacrifice being masculine being dominant being able to withstand pressure all of those characteristics is what contributed to I'm a footballer you carried that tag if you were if you were the hard nut if you were strong within the group if you had the respect of the group because you didn't bow down to injury because you weren't affected by being substituted all of those things meant that you were a true player Hmm. so it's also this really masculine ideas about you know being mentally tough, hardworking, committed, all all those things. And so you certainly saw in your work that, you know, not everybody is like that, that they might not be aligning with with the dominant culture. So what happens to those players? Do they have any chance if they are (laughs) telling a different story about who they are? (laughs) Um, Tough question. Um, Yeah. For me, I think I think no, but I think no at a number of levels. So I, I think frozen out by the coaches is what would happen in the first instance. And that would then very quickly be translated to the players. So they would be frozen out at a hierarchical level by those above them and then frozen out by those that walk the journey alongside them because others around them observed, you don't fit, you're not with us, you're not one of us. And therefore, what you find straight away or very quickly is that these individuals become isolated from that environment and I think Mm. what I found really tough 
is particularly when you're working with these performers, they're not adults, they're not developed individuals, they're still undergoing, they're prior to, during or post-adolescence, they're not adults. So when we're working with them and coaches are using words like mental toughness is really important, they're not being given the opportunity to develop those skills because if we're always encouraged when we face a problem, if we're encouraged to say it's not a problem, move straight on, or not to process or deal with your emotions, not only are you not developing emotional intelligence, you're not actually becoming tough, staying strong in the face of, mm. or not necessarily straight, staying strong, but ignoring or masking over any feelings of vulnerability for me isn't a sign of toughness. It's actually a really... Um, it would raise red flags for me to say that at some point in the future, this individual will face an experience and they will have no idea how to cope. And we haven't given them the space to develop those coping skills by allowing them to be vulnerable, by allowing them to seek help, by allowing them to share their thoughts and their feelings. And they don't actually know how to share their thoughts and feelings now. So when they face this experience, it's actually going to have a, a much bigger impact than it would have done previously. So I think in, to answer your question much more concisely, I think within football, unfortunately, because so many people want to be a player, because the talent pool is so vast that if you don't fit within that identity, it's not an issue for the play, for the coaches. They can quite easily freeze you out and move on to the next one that will align to that culture that will align to those core values within the organization that do have the identity that fits being a footballer. Mm, yeah. So it's a very narrow type of identity or type of meaning that is kind of being brought to what, what is the right type of athlete, right kind of athlete that can succeed. And certainly just like you said, some people are already, even if they are talented and they play well, but they are not being the right type of an athlete. So that's why they might get deselected and and so forth. But so my next question would be then that you've said that sports psychology support is increasing and there is a lot more at least talk about, you know, broader identity development. We want to have these well-rounded individuals who are like good people and good players and who are doing a dual career and, you know, studying at the same time and and, yeah. and so on. So are some of these things really happening or is it just a rhetoric mm-hmm. that has to be used these days? That's, a, that's another really good question. I think... There's some clubs that are doing really excellent work, but I think those clubs that are doing excellent work, it's perhaps driven by ex-players who have experienced and been rejected as a function of the professional football culture and now have the opportunity to make a change, or it's driven by the players themselves. So I do think I do think in some sense that the, there is good work happening, but I think that some of those deep-rooted issues are certainly not going away and probably until a governing body stands up and changes policy we're not going to see change on a much larger scale so still even now the EPPP does not have it has some guidelines around how sports psychology should be delivered they're very vague they're very performance driven they very much overlook the broader nature of what it means to be an athlete 
and what the statistical chances of success are. So what actually it could mean to be part of a professional football academy and some of the work we could be doing in relation to broadening identity. So I still think most clubs and most organisations are in a phase where anything they do is a tick box exercise as opposed to being done with the true intentions of creating change and changing that narrative. And I don't know if changing the narrative is even possible. So I had a really interesting discussion um, last week, I think it was, around performance and well-being. And obviously, as sports psychologists, we know very much that the way in which we operate, it's not one or the other, it's both. And I sat back and I was engaging in a conversation and it led me to the conclusion that can we actually have positive psychological well-being, sustain positive psychological well-being and elite performance in professional football? Can you actually get the two over a sustained period? And I'm now, I'm really unsure whether that's even possible. And I don't know the level of change that would be required for that to happen. At the moment, we've got places that are going all around performance and others like British cycling or gymnastics that's now all around well-being because of what's been come out in the media. And I think finding that happy medium, I'm, I'm really not sure whether that's possible. And I guess, yeah, that's something that I'm battling with at the moment around what are clubs' intentions that do introduce things like this? Is it a tick box exercise? Is sports psychology actually well received or not? And who is driving change? Because it has to be board members, directors, those in positions of power that buy into developing an athlete's identity, broadening an athlete's identity, broadening an individual's identity and making their academy experience enriching, but also at policy level, which would come through the Premier League and the FA. And I think we're we're years and years and years from getting there just yet. Sorry to be negative, though. Mm-hmm. I've had some emails with Martin Roderick, and he's doing the sociological work in, in football, and he's agreed to talk in the podcast about these things in a few weeks. So I will certainly ask about <laughs> these questions with him as well, that he's written some very critical work on, you know, working in football as a professional athlete is such precarious work and, you know, you know that you can be done tomorrow and and all these things. So if we think of football, uh, professional football as a as a context and all the structures and and how much does sport really have to change or is it even possible yes. that it is going to be this kind of enriching experience <laughs> for as long as elite sport and professional sport works the way it is. So I think that's. Yeah, that's really a big question. And yes. <laughs> it's easy to be despairing about yeah. all that as well. Yeah. Absolutely. You can get yourself in a right pickle when you think about it. And then you can get yourself, yeah, almost I guess as a sports psychologist, like what is what then is my role? If I can't achieve a balance between the two, what's my meaning and what's my purpose within the environment? And that's something that I've really battled with over perhaps the last month or so. Yeah. So just thinking of there might be listeners who are working in an applied context or maybe hoping to do that in the future. And if your values and your heart is really in the place that you really care about this vast majority who will not be professional footballers and thinking about that, what is 
what are they going to take from that experience with them? What are your thoughts? How how can you work towards this broader identity development and having that experience that you can look back to that, that I didn't become a professional footballer, but that's still something that I find some value from. So just maybe yeah. some thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, I think first and foremost, it's, although they do operate in a very hierarchical structure, um, I think giving them some opportunity for ownership or maybe even shared ownership in working collaboratively with coaches so that they feel their voice can be heard and that their voice does matter and they have some responsibility and some ownership over making decisions with regards to their development journey within professional football and also perhaps outside of football. So, for example, it's really interesting that you mentioned the dual career. I do know that when um, I was work- when I was doing my practitioner research at PhD, we had two players that had finished their GCSEs and they wanted to do A-levels, but the club don't let anybody. So you're not allowed to do A-levels. You're only allowed to do a sports science BTEC because that fits around um, the training and match demands of signing a full-time contract at the age of 16. And these two individuals wanted to pursue, so one wanted to pursue physics at university and so wanted to do A-levels in preparation for that one. That, and another person wanted to do economics, politics, and I think it was business. And neither of them had the opportunity to engage in those studies. They both had to do a sports science BTEC and both were released at the age of 18 which meant they had to then go back and do a further two years of studying. And they spoke about that two years as a scholar, as a youth scholar, being a waste of their life and a waste of what they could have achieved. So I think clubs being a little bit more flexible at a practical and logistical level around allowing performers to engage in things that they are interested in, engage in alternative opportunities. I think providing them with greater education around who they are who they can become and also others within that environment is really helpful so for example um i did host one session and it was just prior to ramadan and a lot we had two one age group with twins in that were both going to take part in ramadan and they were faced a lot of questions from the other players around their eating habits and what would happen to their performance and so what i kind of did as a consequence of that was hosted a session that was led by the two players that allowed them to present to the rest of the players what religion meant to them and what Ramadan meant to them. And it was really interesting because then the players that were engaging in those behaviours were able to express themselves. It allowed them to explore their identity, to to almost showcase that identity that religious identity to other individuals and for the other players in the group that were in the room they also started talking about other sources of meaning to themselves and it was really nice just to see that different dynamic that conversation about something that's really meaningful that's really important to a performer that isn't football based and they had that conversation between themselves and I guess as a follow-up from that what we also did was with the group of players So we got each age group to just identify an issue in society that they felt was really important to them at that moment in time. And so, for example, one of the age groups chose racism. And as an age group, we then got them in smaller groups to do presentations to each other and why that was important to them and what they felt should happen and what they felt could happen. 
And I think that just broadened their identity. It just gave them the opportunity in a safe space to have those critical discussions. So at an organisational level and at a club level, it's not necessarily taking the focus away from football, but it's just adding in little things that will foster their psychological development that allows them to explore and to demonstrate that they do have alternative sources of meaning, other things are important to them, and that we encourage them to embrace those other um, sources of meaning, to embrace what is important to them beyond football. And I think providing an environment with a level of psychological safety, where they have a safe space that they can open up and show their vulnerabilities is also really important give them the opportunity to make choices, so take ownership and responsibility for their development. And I think not constraining them, allowing them to be who they want to be within the remit as long as they're professional within the environment and they are turning up to training and they're performing to the best of their ability whilst they're on the pitch. We want them to be who they... We don't necessarily want 12 clones of each other. We actually want to give them the freedom and the possibilities to become who they want to become as opposed to who they feel they should become as a consequence of being a youth footballer or being in the first year of their professional contract. And I think that only comes with an environment where there's a level of psychological safety, where others are also doing the same thing. So they have role models and they are encouraged by influential figures such as captains, staff, um, so a psychologist, education officer, the coaches, the director, to embrace the fact that everybody is different and not everybody will align to the to the traditional masculine dominance that exists within football. So, yeah, I think those are a few of the different ways um, in which I've worked with performers, maybe that somebody else might utilise or I'm sure everybody else has really strong, good ideas as well. Mm. Yeah, I really love the example about talking about religion when it comes up as something that is really that you have to understand that when when these young players are in part of the team and that gives like a really wonderful opportunity for for the other players to also learn about the religion that is different from them from their own and yeah i think that's one of those wonderful examples that you can can be doing that work as a sports psychology practitioner even in this environment that you that we talked about in some quite negative terms so there it's certainly not an easy environment for a young person but I think that kind of examples that you gave are really inspirational for others to explore as well so yeah so let's let's finish up for our first part of the conversation and and then we will in the next part we'll move on to talking about applied practice and professional philosophy and experiences of working applied so more focus on the practitioner but yeah okay wonderful uh, yeah so for the first part thank you so much no problem thanks for joining us this week on physical activity researcher podcast if you like the show make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on twitter This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, 
in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.